Want the reward? Do the damn work. Challenge yourself. Inspire change. Choice, not luck. Okay, everybody. Todd Crandall from Racing for Recovery with another podcast. And I am pleased and a little nervous to have Dr. Huzenga on here today. How are you, sir? I'm great so far. It's early, though. A lot of stuff can go wrong. <laughs> no, technology, we got the bad stuff out of the way. You are out in Los Angeles, so you're three hours behind us here on the East Coast. I appreciate you getting up early. Um, I want to I want to start with this. Uh, maybe a simple question, but why did you decide to accept my offer to come on our podcast today? Well, I'm I'm I was intrigued by your story. I love uh, people with unique athletic prowess and uh, commitment. So that's always a plus because that's kind of my angle in life is athletics, and I've been one of the the, the original people kind of on the medical side interested in, you know, the different uh, medical consequences of different levels of exercise. And I've always felt that that was an underutilized way to treat disease. Um, and also you're good buddies with somebody that I, I, I have a lot of faith and respect in. So I guess a combination of the two. Perfect. Uh, it, it pays to uh, to know kind people. That's for sure. sure. Uh, so I'm I'm thankful you're on here. Let Let me ask you this because I've been thinking of all kinds of questions to get this started. Why did you choose to go into the the medical field? And why don't you give people back at home a little bit of a background so they know who you are? Well, I, I guess I backed into it. My dad was a physicist. My dad was a nuclear physicist, and he obviously worked on the Manhattan Project. And I was always going to go into math or physics. In the last minute, I just, I always worked at my dad's, uh, you know, nuclear lab. And um, just it was, seemed a little bit dry, a little bit boring. There weren't a lot of people. And so I thought, huh, maybe medicine would be a way to do the science part and have a little bit more interhuman interactions. And kind of the last minute uh, kind of tried to sober up uh, from a high school, excuse me, a, a college kind of fraternity party and took my SATs and did and my uh, pre-med tests and did pretty well. And so I thought maybe that would be better than going into grad school in, in science. But they're all interrelated fields of science. And I've always been kind of particularly interested in science. Did you, you, we've talked about the athleticism stuff and I love that. Why don't we start with this? Where was your interest on a physical format? Did you come from an athletic background? If so, would you play? And let's talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I was always kind of did pretty well in school, but I never really cared about that. I was always kind of much more interested in, you know, giving up on, although I did, you know, Val Victorian, I, I always would get to bed by about eight or nine o'clock because I was just interested in, in, you know, sports and obviously played football and wrestling and baseball and track. And that really was my interest. And so when I went to college, it was the same thing. I was much more interested in the sports and playing sports in college 
than the grades, but I was lucky enough to do reasonably well. But I always kid that I think I got an athletic scholarship to med school because, um, you know, I, my, my parents were in Europe and I didn't have, it used to cost a ton of money to apply to med school. So I really could only had enough money to apply to three med schools. And shockingly enough, or maybe not shockingly, if they really knew me, two of the three med schools said they weren't going to accept me because I couldn't go to the original, um, medical interviews because it interfered with my college wrestling season. So only Harvard actually sent a representative over to interview me. So that was the only med school I got into. Um, but I kind of half jokingly say it was because, you know, they usually accept a couple of people that did really well in college sports. So I guess in a backhanded way that worked. And of course, that segued right into my professional career, because one of the first things I did was uh, I became the the one of the youngest doctors in the NFL, the doctor for the Raiders, but that was partly because the then owner, Al Davis, uh, was kind of interested in somebody that played sports. He didn't want a doctor that didn't know that, you know, you're going to be injured and basically you're probably going to have to play hurt. And so that was the name of the book I, I wrote about my time with the Raiders. You know, you're okay. It's just a bruise because that was my my interview, I was all excited that I could tell him I went to Harvard, but he didn't ask that. He just said, you know, were you an all-American wrestler? And I said, yes. And he said, did you play hurt? And I said, hell yes. And of course, that's how I got the job. <laughs> that's awesome. That is awesome. And I can equate to that mindset so well. I am very interested. So first of all, I'm I'm 57. I'm an old school Raiders guy. That was, and I guess it still is my favorite football team. I'm more of a hockey guy, but, you know, Ken Stabler, Fred Blitnikoff, the old school Raider guys. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about when, when you started treating these guys. I was a little bit after that. My, my, year, my first year was a little bit after Freddie was a coach. But, you know, I started in with a Jim Plunkett. You know, I started in 83. And, of course, my very first year, we won a Super Bowl. So I was like, I don't have enough fingers to wear all the Super Bowl rings I'm going to get over the next 10 years. But, of course, that was the only Super Bowl we got. But it was an amazing experience because, number one, I was like a kid in a candy store. Like, you know, that was my dream job. Of course, then being the team doctor, I made $12,000 a year. But it had nothing to do with the money money you were making you know, and you know playing catch with Plunkett catching you know Ray guys punts and learning about the medicine on multiple fronts number one what is big guy medicine you know how is the body of a, a 300 pound athlete different from the average 70 kilogram American that you know you learn about in med school number one number two what are some of the special needs that these guys have in terms of the stress that they're under at very, very young ages, both physically and emotionally. And obviously, number three, what does that stress lead to in terms of the use of uh, ergogenic aids or aids to enhance the their abilities? Because they're all under such tremendous pressure to perform, and they got the younger guys coming up right behind them. And what did that entail? And, and I learned it was a massive learning curve over the first three, four years of that job. I am. I'm so interested in this. Let's let's pick one of those you talked about. Let's take a, a you know, a 300 pound lineman. Talk about pick an injury and run us through like what treating that that individual would go through. Not only physically. I'm very interested in the emotional and psychological aspect of someone getting hurt at that level. 
what what the comeback is like, how much anxiety plays a role in possibly losing that position to a younger guy that you mentioned? Well, let's start with that because I never understood. I was addicted to exercise and didn't recognize it because, you know, I knew that I worked out every day of my life. I've, I've really worked out, say, 60 years straight. I've never missed a day. And I, I didn't understand it early on what endorphins were or why, you know, beside, you know, is it all vanity or really was there a chemical reason why I was, quote unquote, you know, had to work out every day. And I first understood it when we had this all pro tight end and he got an injury and he just was the most manly, virile guy that I knew, really looked up to him. And all of a sudden, day four in an injury where he had a fracture of the leg and he basically was immobilized. And so he went from intense three hour a day exercise to nothing. All of a sudden that day three or four, this guy was like crying to me. And I'm like, what the heck is the matter with you? Why, why would this really tough, tough guy be literally in tears about something in consequential? And it was this incredible, I'll call it a maximal Prozac effect on anxiety and depression. And that's what exercise does. And when you stop working out, not only do you have the stressors that these guys have, because they know the guy underneath them is going to look good. So they've got that. But there's an emotional component where all of a sudden you unearth baseline anxiety and depressive symptoms. Also, that they're not sleeping as well because exercise regularizes your circadian rhythm. And then all of a sudden, these psychiatric things that may be underlining are exposed. And I never understood that till I really started thinking about this guy. And then I, it helped me understand myself a little bit. You know, I tell people, you know, I've really never taken a medication in my life, but I think I would need to be hospitalized with multiple medications if you tied me down and didn't let me exercise. And that's why I always laugh at people. And they, they say, gee, I didn't work out for two weeks because I've got a fracture. I've got this injury. I had surgery. I'm like, I've had multiple surgeries. I work out the morning of the surgery and then the next day, obviously you have to work around it and do different types of exertion and exercise. But yeah, there are many of us, including some of these players I recognize should not and cannot stop some sort of exercise for emotional healing and for treating straight up psychiatric issues. Boy, we are gonna have a good good talk today. Um, just some background on my story, if you will, um, it, I, I came from a, a, an athletic background with baseball and soccer and particularly hockey. And when I, and I use this word uh, proudly now, I chose to give hockey away due to my drug addiction. And coming into sobriety, it was about six years into my recovery that I found the Ironman and then started racing for recovery. And, and a lot of people, they still do. They'll say, oh, well, you've just taken one addiction and replaced it with another. And that's not, that's not what I've done. It's finding that, that need and the benefit of some form of physical exercise. And I wish more people in the recovery community would look at just the benefits of some exercise 30 minutes or 45 minutes a day. It doesn't mean you have to run out and, like an, and do an Ironman. However, I totally concur with the mindset you're talking about with overcoming emotional, you know, anxiety, depression, whatever. The benefits of simple movement for the body is it's incredible. No question. And 
it is interesting just in the in the modest experience I have with recovery and the drug rehab programs. Yeah, it's sad that that's not an essential component. I, I as a doctor, I, I think it's almost criminal if people give anti-anxiety, antidepressive medications in the face of not fully employing natural means. I mean, drugs have a huge role in psychiatric issues, but if you're not maximizing your circadian rhythm, if you're not getting optimal sleep, if you're not exercising, do we really have the right to be foisting antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs and other substances on people? I mean, I think that should be the add-on and it's often necessary. I'm not suggesting that some of the lifestyle changes can carry it all out. But I think to start with drugs, when you haven't done the natural things that we realize have the lowest side effect and exercise has side effects, but has the lowest risk of side effects. I just don't think that that's uh, ethical and I don't think it's good medicine. It's refreshing to hear you speak like this. I wish I was under your care back when I was younger. Um, <laughs> who knows what our future will bring together. But I, I, I do want to bring this up. Uh, you You talked about you know, the normal modality is here's a script for whatever. Can we talk a little bit about your views on the, the writing of the medicine, how much money is involved in that? And there's nothing wrong with people making money. I, I, I understand that. But, you know, exercise is free for the most part. And, you know, I can, I can diagnose, I can't prescribe, but even if I could prescribe for some of these things, anxiety and depression, my prescription would be mm -hmm. eat some bananas and go get some movement in. So I, I'm interested in your opinion on the economic impact of writing meds for some of this stuff. Well, as you know, the medications for anxiety and depression, those are some of the highest grossing drugs. And I do believe even in appropriately treated people with lifestyle changes that you do often have to go beyond that. But it's it's criminal to me that the drugs become the first treatment. And I, I just think that we really need to expose that for what it is. It's laziness and it's inappropriate. And um, it just seems to me that, you know, I've always taken the stance, you know, we know light has an important role and so getting people outdoors is important, even without the motion. And then we start with, you know, sleep. And then we start with surrounding yourself with people that are add-on givers, not people that are sucking life out of you. And then we add exercise to that. And then we add circadian rhythm. I'm like a massive believer also in regularization. And that doesn't have to be every day, but five or six days a week, um, I think. We're finding more and more, for instance, that it's not just how much sleep you get, it's the regularity of the sleep, it's the pattern of sleep. So for people that don't get what we would say is optimal sleep, they're getting less than seven and a half hours. Maybe that's not that bad if it's really regular, if you're getting just seven hours of sleep a night and it's, it's you're going to bed the same time, same, that may make up for some of that. But not really be, and, and obviously sex, there's something about orgasms, you know, um, that has antidepressant, anti-anxiety properties. So, gosh, you've got like five or six things that we should really be emphasizing. And, and it's just sad to me when I see people on medications 
which is kind of, you know, it's just a reflexed way. And it's, it's making people need a doctor when maybe they don't, you know, it's hooking them up. Um, it's just sad to me that we're not employing these naturals before we go to these drug things, which are great, but, but they, they, they should have a much, much later role in the whole treatment paradigm. Agreed. You, you mentioned sleep, big advocate of, of proper sleep. Can you tell our folks what your views of, of taking melatonin are, a natural sleep aid versus a sleep medication? Well, I'm a big, uh, I'm, you know, I've always said that benzodiazepines, you know, are a stupid drug. If people come to me and, you know, they're talking about their memory, they're talking about their cognition, you know, I, you know, half kiddingly and half realistically say, if you want to get stupid, if that's your goal, you know, close all, you know, forms of communication, you know, take a benzodiazepine and drink alcohol. Uh, you know, if you really, that's how you can get stupid. If you want to get better and smarter, you know, you have to sleep. And we don't even, re- we're just at the infancy of understanding sleep. You know, we just are starting to understand how the act of sleeping helps flush out some of these, you know, amyloid and waste particles. And we didn't even really understand that earlier on. And so I just think that if people, recognize that sleep is as valuable as it is and just because you have your eyes closed and you're not awake that doesn't mean that that's restful and optimal sleep either and so that's why people mistake going to sleep relatively quickly after they drink alcohol or after they take benzodiazepines you have to be cautious in terms of the amount of sleep and what's the type of sleep and you know what people get on some of those home monitoring devices are just you know, not all that accurate at all. And so people have to be aware of that. We just see any errors on some of these home detection devices. But that being said, um, melatonin, you know, maybe even marijuana are some of the lesser damaging drugs to that sleep cycle. But, you know, I'm just so old fashioned that melatonin, yeah, I use that for jet like all the time. And I believe that there's a role in that, especially maybe the lower levels. But it just seems to me that if you get in a regular circadian rhythm and you take your cell phone and you put it in another room and when you wake up, you stop looking at the clock, you can regularize your sleep. You can do a great job on sleep before you do any medications. If you need add-ons, I have to admit, I my impression is melatonin does not do some of the negative things we see with some of the other quote-unquote sleep aids. And I use that very euphemistically. But I, I'm just, I'm such a natural guy that, um, you know, I hear some of the podcast people and they're on three or four or five different homeopathic medications, whether it's magnesium for sleep, melatonin, all these things that I believe are safe and maybe effective. But like, how about let's try nothing and just a really good diet initially and just make sure we're only using those substances for people with deficiencies, they should be used regularly, I don't think. I just, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a naturalist in that regard. I appreciate that. I, going back to some of the things I was doing in my, my drug days, I was, you know, consuming a lot of Valiums. This is back when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. I was 
you know, snorting Valiums, you know, popping them and drinking a, an excessive amount of alcohol. And a lot of that was due to traumatic issues, um, you know, uh, anxiety, well, it has short-term depression. Term benefits. It's, it was helping you short term, let's be honest, right? Absolutely. But long term, it's really, you know, cutting a leg off. It's damaging. And I, one of the things I wanted to ask you with respect to treating those with addiction, how many people that you've encountered that are dealing with substance abuse issues are dealing with some type of unresolved trauma that then a choice of drug is used to medicate that trauma? I, I have no doubt that it's the vast majority, you know, without giving numbers. But in one of the areas that, you know, I have the most experience because I did was a part of 17 seasons of that TV show, Biggest Loser. People that are, for instance, 100 pounds overweight, absolutely whatever, 90 plus plus percent, they had an addiction to carbohydrates. And, and that's all American in our country. You can be addicted to fats and carbohydrates and salt, and that's okay. But if you're addicted to Valium, you, you're probably a bad person, right? You are a, a little bit more of an evil person. And maybe you should be thrown in jail, by the way, because you are that bad. You know, you are taking, whether it's cocaine or heroin or Valium, you're getting it illegally. Yeah, you maybe we should bring in the judicial system and put you in jail. Nobody puts people in jail that's abusing salt, fat, and 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 carbohydrates. But it probably is working in the same center as gambling addiction, sex addiction, and you know what you got stuck in there a little bit. And some people are more predisposed, but these are addictions. They all probably enhance dopamine and they probably have similar chemical bases and some similar consequences. And so in that show with people that had severe overeating issues and, you know, binging, and we can kind of go through that a little bit, uh, massive histories of trauma and sexual abuse. And I was just blown away by the amount of childhood and adolescent trauma in that group. So I, I think that that's a theme that without question is there, uh, especially in individuals that are kind of picking it up at that younger age, no question. That's that's the foundation of everything I do in my clinical work here at Racing for Recovery is just help people to understand the impact of that. And then again, we're back to implementing that that holistic lifestyle. With, with respect to you being on The Biggest Loser, how well did people receive the whole exercise component of that? I mean, I know that's what it takes to lose the weight, but are people, were they really into it or was it a hard sell? How, how was that process? Well, I think that when we started the individuals, and we probably took 400 people that were 100 pounds plus overweight, you know, pretty much with a, a 98, 99% success rate, none of them were exercisers. Some of them had formerly been great athletes or were great athletes like you were. I, were you a great athlete in high school or you figured that out later? When did you find out you were a big time athlete? What, how old were you? Uh, uh, pretty early on, I knew I had a gift to do some of these things. Yeah. So you were good in high school sports. And then you just took a little couple of wrong detours before you got back into it. Correct. Uh huh. So these people, um, we had a mix of people that were legitimate athletes. And in fact, one of our contestants was a, a, a gold medalist in the Olympics that got up to 550 pounds, you know, a, a heavyweight wrestler. So, 
uh, we had people of all ilks of athletic ability before they gained weight. And then a couple people that had never been athletic and especially women that haven't been given, you know, were older and maybe weren't in the era where women's sports was a little bit more available, found out as an adult, they were phenomenal athletes and never had really done anything. But interesting that you bring this point up of the people and they all hated exercise day one, we addicted people to exercise. And that was one of my hopeful premises was how many people that are morbidly obese can we addict to exercise such that they'll recognize it and continue that exercise all the way through. And it turned out that we addicted, and I use the word addiction inappropriately really for exercise, because I, I think that you have to draw a difference between doing something repeatedly that's injurious to your health and doing something on a regular basis that is incredibly beneficial for your health and has all these positive feedbacks as compared to being addicted to something with all these negative ramifications that you keep kind of using excuses why you're going to continue. But having said that, we got probably about 30, 35% of the contestants and they all went back to really kind of lousy doctoring. And, you know, we have a horrible healthcare system in the country, which we won't, you know, we don't necessarily have to touch on, but so about 30, 35% continued exercise, continued to work out on average 70 minutes a day, and they did phenomenally and kept the majority of their weight off. And about 70% all smart people, all attractive, because that's who they put on the show, attractive, overweight people, motivated, overweight people. Uh, even those people with very good intentions, uh, about 70% then just went and regained all their weight. And on average, those people continued to work out 15 minutes a day. And even though they went back to their baseline weight, there were metrics that indicated they were still in better health, uh, but they regained the weight when you only work out about 15 minutes a day. And it takes about 70 or more minutes a day for success. And, and you know, I always half jokingly said, you know, I should have won a Nobel Peace Prize for, you know, having a 30% success rate. But you know, other people look at that differently and they go, gosh, 70% of your people went right back to their baseline weight. That's a horrible show. So, uh, you know, there's different ways of looking at that data. I see it as a success. <laughs> you know, that's, that's beautiful. Well. What, what are you doing today physically for your exercise and your wellness? Well, I work out every day. I kind of have a hard day and a wimpy day and my hard day you know, I'll basically do something for about 30 to 40 minutes. That's my aerobic best thing. So maybe I'll, I'll you know, do a treadmill where I walk up 14% at, you know, 3.5 3 miles an hour. And that'll get me to about 80, 85% of my maximal heart rate. And I can, you know, I'll do that for 30, 40 minutes. And then I'll go into my HIIT training and I'll maybe, you know, go uh, at 14 degrees. I'll run seven you know, miles an hour for 60 to 90 seconds. And I'll do that. And then with a three minute kind of slow walk up, uh, you know, a 12 degree ramp up uh, at two miles an hour and rest for three minutes and do hit training. I'm in a basketball league uh, that I do once a week. And then I will um, do some other sports. I'll play tennis a couple times a week, uh, but pretty much, you know, then maybe lift weights three times a week. I'm not a big weightlifter. Uh, although I'll do it, that's just not my, my fun thing is kind of doing interval runs up an incline, you know, so I live in Malibu and that's kind of the thing I, I gear to best in my brain and also 
playing sports. So that's kind of, you know, how I run it. I, excuse me, I, when I've been out in Malibu, I've, I've noticed the two times recently that I was out there, I'd run down, you know, PCH, but the, the tilt of the road on the side, plus the traffic, I'm like, I, I can't do this. It wasn't good. I still need to you, find. You need the side roads going up the hills. That's I do. Gotta, I got to take you. Next time you come to Malibu, you can come visit me. I'll show you the good spots. Yeah, I need to find some good spots because the PCH is not a good spot to be running on. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Talk. You know, let's get back to the Raiders a little bit. I, I'm interested. You brought this up with uh, Mr. Al Davis, you know, basically saying, okay, you were an athlete and you played injured. Okay, you're hired. I love that. How did how did your athleticism, um, how was that received with the players that helped build your relationships with them where they trusted in you and what you were doing? Well, I think that that was actually very beneficial that I could kind of go out and, you know, work out a little bit with them. But, um, you know, I was a great athlete in college, but these people were an order of magnitude better than me. So it's always kind of very impressive, the different levels, like you can be an All-American in college, which I was, and you can see that these people are All-American on top of All-American, you know, and so it was impressive being around them. And, but I understood what they were going through emotionally. And, you know, I always had a, you know, a drug-free mindset and it was, it was helpful because, you know, they were under a huge amount of pressure and trying to keep them off anabolic steroids and growth hormone and uh, uppers and things like that. You know, I think that me having been an athlete made it a little bit easier to talk to them about things like that, given the pressures that they were under. And I also had had most of the injuries they had and kind of knew both the, you know, emotional impact of what it feels like when you pull a hamstring and you're just so motivated. And, you know, I always viewed myself as the guy that had to throw out the white flag. And I think, you know, when you look at some of the problems we had back in the early days, and I think some of that has been rectified, but not all, you know, there never was anybody with the guts to throw out a white flag and say, this player has to be taken out. And now they do a better job with that. But back in my day, you know, if you got a concussion, you'd basically say, you know, what's the score? And then they'd look at you and go, Doc, I'm a defensive lineman. They don't pay me enough money to know what the score is. I'm just, I just hit the guy across from me, you know, and it was kind of funny, but it really wasn't. And, you know, that's kind of where, you know, in the book I wrote, you know, it was this incredible conflict between being a good doctor and being a good team physician. Those are two totally separate things because they're hiring you to get the players on the field. And there's huge ethical conflicts there. Wow. You mentioned steroids. Uh, Back in my day, I was accused of taking steroids. I've never taken steroids, but I've had I admit it on a couple of podcasts I've done. I started taking HRT a few years ago, not to get big Mm -hmm. muscles. I just, I went and had a checkup and I, and the doctor said, your testosterone is almost gone practically. And that was a lifesaver for me, just where I could be, I call it back being on an equal playing field. Can you talk to the folks that are watching this a little bit about HRT and what your views on that are? Well, HRT is a really difficult thing. There's there's supernormal levels of testosterone, and that's something that's been clearly shown 
to be advantageous for sprinters and big time weightlifters. And that's kind of one bucket we'll put. And there's a huge number of complications and problems with that, both short term and long term, emotionally as well as medically. And then there's <clears throat> this whole thing about uh, HRT. And let me just start with my experience with The Biggest Loser. We had this huge group of individuals that were 100 pounds overweight and uniformly, without exception, they were all low in their testosterone. Men that are overweight, and that's 80% of America, is overweight and underfit. So people that are well fit and ideal weight, that may be even less than 10%. So you've got this huge group of Americans that are overweight, over centripetally fat and underfit. That's obviously not you, but these are people whose testosterones are low and you can markedly increase testosterone. And in fact, we got the vast majority of these men to normal levels of testosterone, not necessarily by replacing them, which we could have done, but by lowering their centripetal fat and increasing their fitness. And so I think that's something that's also not fully done. You obviously were fit and uh, are a good weight, so you would be a, a different category. But that's the first thing you have to do is you have to get off excess fat, you have to get fit, and you have to also recognize a lot of times when you go to the doctor, you're sick, you have a flu, you have a virus, and that's another time your testosterone drops. And so you have to also recognize testosterone is very up and down. And you have to get multiple readings before you're really sure what the level is. And it's important to do all those things because when you make a decision, and it, it can be appropriate, and I have patients that are on HRT without question, but when you make that decision, it's a lifelong decision. So we don't take that as a, you know, it's not like, well, you know, you'll, you'll get this antibiotic. You know, it's a lifelong decision. And so that's something that we think takes multiple measurements and then you go okay yeah you're for a variety of reasons either primarily or secondarily you're not synthesizing the level of testosterone you need for this whole list of things testosterone does your libido your ability to get appropriate erections at appropriate times your vitality your ability to gain muscle when you work out and so when people have deficiencies there and their testosterone are low, testosterone replacement therapy can be a world changer. But I do take umbrage with the multiple clinics that are around that they just put people, and there are people online that have huge followings that basically put people on HRT and human growth hormone universally. And very frankly, there's an upper effect from that and people feel better. And so they basically just gauge it like, hey, do you feel better? Are you stronger? And the answer is yes. And so therefore, they, they validate the use of that. And I think the reason why I would be nervous about that is if you go from a low to a normal, I think that's beneficial in every regard. If you go from a normal or a low normal to a high normal or an excessively high level, that may actually be a age accelerating treatment. And my big push currently is all age reversal and what can we do to lengthen people's lives, their quality of life as well as their length of life. And excessive testosterone is something that can have a beneficial effect on your athletic performance short term at the expense of, I believe, shortening your it's interesting. You were.
go ahead. It's it's not a panacea, but it's very helpful for certain people. And when it's used appropriately, it's a great treatment. You were cutting out a little bit right there. Sorry to interrupt you. I you're you're validating my my choice to do that. It's it's interesting. You know, I'm terrified of needles. I don't like getting my blood drawn. And the blood draws that I had to initially go through and still go through when I go back to get a a prescription, I'm like, oh, do I have to keep doing this? But my doctor is very adamant on making sure that the levels are back to that normal and not an excessive. And one of the things that I found... You know, we, we've, we've talked about sleep. We've talked about, you know, positive mood. That's really why I was taking them in addition to, yeah, I was getting some nagging injuries. And my doctor said these are partly due to a lack of testosterone. So not not having the negative aging impact that you were talking about. I just wanted to be back to normal even at 57 just to feel on a living play, uh, a level playing field, and I I thank God that my doctor has done it quote the right way, and you're you're validating that as well. I'm not trying to be one of your 300 pound big muscle pound linemen anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was sad. The high levels uh, come back and bite people in the ass. Sadly, be- between some of these cardiac syndromes, there's. Uh, Clearly, a, a mood depression effect when people go off testosterone, and there is apparently an age accelerant effect of excessive testosterone. And you know, also, you know, this mood effect of getting a little too aggressive. You know, uh, obviously, back in the day, the the poor, you know, many wives of players that were taking anabolic steroids would be on their hands and knees begging me to get their their husband off because they were different individuals on excessive levels of testosterone. Yeah. You, you mentioned the um, predisposition. We were talking earlier about some things and I could, I can tell from my genetic predisposition to addiction. I mean, my, my mom, my uncle, and my aunt were all addicted to something and all three of them committed suicide. And, and I could tell once I started knowing that that stuff was in my system that negative mindset was trying to, hey, I could sell the doctor on why I need a bunch of this stuff. And it was very interesting to know my own mind at that point in recovery and saying, no, we have to bring this back of why I'm doing it and keep it at a level, or a, a level playing field. And the, the power of the, the mind on an addiction level is, it's an interesting thing, as you know. So again, I'm just doing it with the, the way it should be. Sounds like you are. Yeah, I, I concur. Um, do you have any questions for me as I've been drilling you with stuff? Is there anything you want to ask me? <laughs> well, what's your workout schedule? I'd like to hear what you do at age 57. To, and what's your do? Do you do really good body compositions? Because I think one of the things people don't get that I'm a, a, a freak on is really good DEXA scans to know exactly how much centripetal fat they have. Uh, because I've got a lot of people that, you know, are really interested in optimal health and they're working out and we find out that they're just fat. You know, they have, you know, 45, 50, even 60 pounds of of total body fat and they think that they're super healthy and they're kind of shocked to know that they're skinny fat. I I have to meet you personally to go over some of this stuff, but because I'm very interested in some of the things you've shared today on a, what I do on a, a daily basis, if you will. I, I ran 
just over four miles this morning. Just a quick 34-minute blast. That's my, I call it my mood enhancer. I'm old school like you. I, I do a ton of push-ups, like 250 to 300 a day. I, I live a plant-based diet lifestyle, which enhances it. I do lift weights a little bit, uh, not like I used to, but but running, you know, biking and swimming, obviously, as well with doing Ironman, but running a fair amount, not an excessive amount, a quick four to six miles a day, few hundred push-ups a day, that that's my staple, and I feel great. I don't know... In addition to that, I, I forgot where my body fat was. One time I was at, I was at Ironman Wisconsin, and they had a new body scale that could measure all these things. And I stood on the scale, and I think my body fat at that time was 6%. And I didn't even, I didn't know it consciously. And I had somebody there said, hey, you know, you got to be careful of this because you're on the verge of being, you know, dangerously low of a body uh, percent content. So I've always been somewhat aware of some of these things, but I don't know it in the great detail that I'm sure you could help me with. Yeah, you have to be careful because standing on a scale, quote unquote, that those kind of bioimpedance um, plethmography techniques are a little bit inaccurate. Uh, same thing for, you know, subcutaneous fat where you get the pincers and sometimes those can um, somewhat under estimate your body fat but you know they're really good serially but if you want to know exactly how much fat you pretty much have to do either a bod pod or a dexa scan those are going to probably be the techniques that are a little bit more accurate in big time athletic people like yourself uh but it is i think that's the shocking thing to me is how many people that think they're super fit and doing everything great and bragging to all their friends you know, how many of those people really are coming in at 40, 45 pounds of total body fat, you know, when they weigh whatever, 180 or so. Uh, I think that's a little bit of a, and the other thing that's interesting to me is how many people, you know, are really kind of phoning it in on workouts and they're, they're exercising. And and we all know that, you know, just walking probably will get you 70% of the benefit, but gosh, you know, you got to go for that other 30% by doing some vigorous exercise. And, you know, you, you really can't work out three or four times a week and think that you're getting anywhere near your maximum age reversal benefits, you know, and um, that's kind of sad to me that people uh, spend so much time with devices and all this high tech stuff, and they really aren't out there, you know, working out and, uh, optimizing their body content like they could. And, and they just spend though all this time doing all these high level analyses of their, of their functionality and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and they know exactly, you know, how many minutes they sleep and they think they know, you know, what, you know, the different levels of sleep duration is. And they, they come in and quote me all this data, but really the important things that they should be starting with, they're nowhere near. And, and that's also a reflection that, and just my last little comment on the state of healthcare in this country, how many doctors could be thrown in front of 30 people and lead an exercise class? So doctors have no idea about exercise. And so therefore, you know, people aren't getting any guidance and who should be the most expert cardiologists. They have no clue. And in fact, you know, doctors tend to be, as a whole, a very unhealthy group of people. They're very smart, they're well-intentioned, 
but physicians don't tend to be athletes, you know? And so you've got the group that's advising us on our exercise that really aren't into exercise themselves. And they have kind of a real bias against it. And if you knew the number of doctors that tell my patients, well, you know, when I go to the track, I bet on horses, you know, when I, you know, and they're, they're kind of almost have an anti-exercise bias. And it's just sad because, you know, that all started in the 1980s when people recognized with with events like what you do, there there can be sudden death. But it wasn't until, you know, maybe the mid 1980s that we found that, okay there is rarely death and cardiac issues in people that do do marathons and strenuous exercise. But the benefits vastly outweigh the detriments. And that includes vigorous exercise because it used to just be thought, oh, yeah, if you're the the ticket guy that goes up and down the stairs in the bus in England, they live longer than the driver. But now we know very clearly that vigorous exercise is good for you. And that really wasn't known up until the, the 1980s, 1990. But that same belief has permeated through medicine even until the present day. And, you know, many doctors will tell our people that need it the most, people with heart disease or heart disease in the family, don't do vigorous exercise. And that's another kind of big bone I have to pick with the current healthcare system. God, I, re- I respect your, your knowledge in this so greatly. So here's a, a personal question. I apologize. I'm doing it on a, a Racing for Recovery podcast. But I've heard people over the course of me doing Ironman since 1999, you know, people say like, well, what about the impact you're having on your body? You're destroying yourself and all that stuff. And I, a lot of people have, you know, it, it's coming from care. But with doing, you know, a hundred and I don't even know, and 113 Ironmans over the course of those 25 years, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're talking about, quote, excessive exercise that can be and is beneficial. Would you put me into that category? Or knowing that number, are you like, oh, my God, this dude's doing too much? Well, that's a real hot button topic, what you're bringing up. The first thing that I want to mention is there's multiple studies on intense exercise, and there's no clear evidence that we have ever found of an instance of too much exercise. There are anecdotal cases, obviously, of people that do these tremendous Ironman marathon sessions and can get cardiac problems. So It does happen anecdotally. It is something that's being actively looked into. But, you know, in a large population, nobody knows the upper limit of exercise yet that's beneficial. And even if you demonstrate anecdotal problems for people like yourself that are maniacal in terms of Iron Man, you know, you still don't know what's the benefit. You know, when people die, that is something that we'd like to prevent. But, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of people dying from obesity and lack of exercise. So to then start nitpicking the people like you that may slightly be increasing your risk of death at the expense of incredibly emotional things, you may have been dead five times over from drug addiction if you didn't get into this vigorous exercise. So for whatever little bit theoretically you may be increasing your risk of cardiac death, you may be on an emotional basis multiplying times 10 the benefit. And so you have to be, it. you know, it comes back to, you know, what we did with COVID. 
yes, you know, it may be very helpful to prevent COVID deaths, to tell everybody to border themselves in the house and not do any exercise. But when you look at the entirety of life and death, that was the worst advice possible. So, you know, you, you have to look at the big picture, Todd's entire health, and then you can look at this microcosm, okay, your fanaticism with Iron Man. And even if you show that that has a little detriment net-net, the overall benefit probably in you is, I'm just suspecting, far, far beneficial. But this is data we don't have yet. It's refreshing to hear you discuss this. I have to tell my parents today that I talked to you about this. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. You brought up, you know, that I could have died during my drug addiction. And I will say this wholeheartedly. I think the fact that I was athletic as a kid and even during my addiction, that's what prevented me from actually dying from some of this stuff without question. What I, I don't have any doubt. Give us, you know, I've taken up a lot of your time today. I appreciate it. Tell, give us one final thing you'd like to say to our audience today that they really can take home to benefit from. Well, I think that, you know, everybody knows that uh, exercise is essential, sleep. One of the things that we don't talk about is, you know, in my view of patients, I can't really help people that aren't excited about the future. And so one of the things I'd like to leave people with is, you know, you've got to have a passion. I have a passion now. Uh, you know, it was getting overweight people in shape. When I did Biggest Loser, I just got all into it. Uh, when I was a doctor for the Raiders, I just wanted to know everything about, you know, somebody, you know, shoved a, a, a plate of food out of their hotel room and there was a needle on it. And that's when I started getting into anabolic steroids and what it meant. And, and you, I want people to get good at something and you don't have to be the best at it. You just have to be good at it and better than you were last week. And you have to have a desire to get even better at that thing. And when you get a joy in improving your own knowledge and your own uh, ability in certain areas, then you get excited about the future. And when you get excited about the future, all of these things become much easier to do in terms of the lifestyle change. And those are the people that we can help. We can't help somebody that's not excited about the future. And, and you can tell that you are, and that's, that's something that that's a little harder to teach, but would really like to get people, um, recognizing that they have to achieve and you know the Raiders had a kind of a schmaltzy term you know the, this kind of uh belief in excellence and and I, I just think that that was one of the good things that Al tried to impart on us as people of that team and and um and that's something that really plays out well in the public it was a pure honor to have you on here today. I can't wait to get this out. I will definitely be in touch with you on a on a personal level. I thank you so much for I'll your time today. I'll work you out today. in Malibu. I'm a lot older than you, so you know I'm gonna I'm gonna we'll, we'll see how you do out there. I'll be out there soon. Good talking to you. <laughs> All right. Talk later, Todd. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you very much for tuning in to Racing for Recovery. An excellent educational conversation we just had. If you or a loved one needs some help, check out racingforrecovery.org, all of our podcasts on our YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to that. If you want to give us a call, 419-824-8462. With sobriety, anything is possible.